So welcome to the first episode of the Arconnect Sessions podcast. I'm Paul, founder of Arconnect, and I'm here with Amelia, editorial manager for Arconnect. Hello, everyone. So Amelia, it's uh, it's been a while since we've uh, we've been we, since we started talking about this podcast. Oh yeah, this has been on both of our back burners for a while. I'm super excited to get it started. Um, about a year in the making, almost. Yeah, yeah, we've gone through uh, many different concepts for how how to approach this podcast. So I'm glad that we've decided on one and we've uh, we've started. Yeah, me too. So today we have two special guest hosts with us, uh, as uh, many regular Arconnect readers are already familiar with. Uh, we've got Donna Sink. Hello, everyone. Hi, Donna. Hey, Donna. How are you doing? Good. Great. Thanks. And uh, Donna's, Donna's uh, actually in Indianapolis right now, correct? Yes, that's correct. And we've got uh, Ken. Ken, can you remind me again how your last name is pronounced? It's uh, Kunzi. Kunzi. That's right. Yeah. And I'm in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota right now. How are you doing? All right. And I, I dare say most people on Arconnect probably don't know who I am because I still operate under a pseudonym. That's true. Is that, some, is that something that you're going to be uh, uh, disclosing or are you going to keep it private? I, I'm kind of debating that internally. <laughs> okay. Well, no pressure. <laughs> oh, <from> great. <laughs> no pressure from us. Okay. So how has everybody's week been? I know that, uh, um, Donna, you just got back from a, uh, a big event, correct? Yes. I, so I spent last uh, Thursday and Friday, I am um, active locally on my uh, Indianapolis AIA, uh, American Institute of Architects uh, Executive Committee. And last week we had our annual local convention, which uh, this year was um, Kentucky and Indiana combined. And in alternate years, we do Ohio as well. So we just did two, three days in Fort Wayne last week, and it was Indiana and Kentucky AIA. I gave a presentation there on some sort of very cool nonprofit urban design work that I'm involved with, as well as linking that in with the um, emerging professionals group of the AIA that I'm also active with. And I think we're going to talk a little more later about some NCARB changes and things that are coming as a result of some of the work the emerging professionals is doing. Um, so I had a really good conference. It was a lot of work because I gave my paper. Um, I didn't have a lot of time to just hang out and drink bourbon with the other architects. So that was too bad that I missed that chance, but um, I got a lot of work done. Um, one sort of cool thing I, I, noticed, and um, we, this might be a topic for a future podcast. Um, we had a group, a, a, a keynote speaker, Johnson Schmalling Architects uh, from Wisconsin, and they were fantastic, do amazing work. I think we've had something by them on Arconex before, and um, their work was fant is fantastic. Totally the kind of work that I like best. It's, it's material detail-based, based entirely in methods of construction and interesting and appropriate uses of materials. Really fantastic work. Um, they, uh, at the end of their presentation, they um, were given, asked some questions. And one of the questions was, who are your mentors? Um, and the response came back really, well, we don't really have any mentors. Uh, we never did. Uh, which struck me as odd. Um, I, I would be, you know, if someone asked me who my mentors were, I could come up with easily 10 names, a dozen maybe. Um, but they, you know, they're doing their own thing. So then the, after that presentation were our local service awards for the AIA chapter and um, the local Indiana AIA gold medal winner was Wayne Schmidt of Schmidt Associates Architects here in Indianapolis. And their firm has always been 
really fantastic about um, donating their time, volunteering their time to the AIA, to other uh, local initiatives we have going on. Um, and when Wayne, the founder of the firm, stood up to accept his gold medal, he said, I would not be here without the help of all of my mentors. And he listed about six people who have helped him along his way. And then he put the challenge to us. And I would like to put the challenge to everyone who's listening. Uh, who, are, who are you mentoring? Who are you helping in this profession, um, in this discipline that is so based on uh, mentorship and um, internship, even though that's a dirty word now. So that, that's what I'd like to sort of put out there to people. And um, so that was great. And then I got back to work on Monday and it's just been crazy since then. That's a great challenge. Uh, we, <laughs> yeah, we need to, uh, we need to get that, get that up on, on our connect and see, see how people respond to that. Um, Donna, can you, can you just briefly tell us a little bit about your work that you were presenting at the, at the conference? So I work with a, uh, I'm on the board of a local nonprofit called People for Urban Progress. Um, we are a group that came about when the, uh, the RCA Dome in Indianapolis was torn down about eight years ago. Um, the founder, Michael Bricker of our organization, um, asked the question of the city, why, uh, what, what's happening to that fabric roof? It was an air-supported fabric roof. Um, and they said that fabric's all going to the landfill. And Michael said, well, that's not good. And so he initiated a... Um, a movement to get the fabric saved and stored and started then the nonprofit People for Urban Progress. So what we do is take that fabric, we turn it into bags and saleable goods. And then with the proceeds from the saleable goods, we do small urban design interventions in basically in underserved neighborhoods. Um, I'll, some of it's on my profile on Archonnect. I'll have to put up some more. Um, but so one of the interesting things, and this gets into some of the topics we're talking about is um, there's a lot of that kind of work going around, not just in Indianapolis, but around the, the, the country, certainly, and um, people doing these sort of um, ground up uh, design interventions. And many of the people I know that are doing that kind of work went to architecture school, are not licensed, are not really interested in getting licensed. Um, and my talk got dug in a little bit to how in the national organizations we're, we're concerned about losing some of these people that are not interested in being licensed and feel like they're not really welcome in the profession um, because the licensure process is so rigorous and difficult and confusing. And um, so that's kind of what I, I was uh, presenting on. So it was a lot of feel good, cool urban design work. And then, and here's this big overarching uh, bureaucracy that you have to deal with. So it was a, a comparison between those two, um, those two modes of operation, let's say. That sounds awesome. Um, Ken. Yes. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Can you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about, about uh, what keeps you busy on a, on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, um, I just started work. Well, I started, uh, I started working for a firm in uh, downtown Minneapolis um, in February that does um, hospitality work and uh, retail. <clears throat> So over the past few months, I've been motivating myself to get out there and try to bring in clients to the firm. I've never done that work before. Um, it's something I've always wanted to do and actually uh, found that I'm actually not too bad at. Um, so that's kind of been my focus currently at, at my uh, the firm I work for. Um, and other than that, I uh, just got back from Turkey, slightly less rigorous experience than Donna has been going through these past few weeks. Um, and I'm involved locally on my neighborhood organization and um, as on their um, board and 
serve on the neighborhood development committee with inside inside that uh, organization as well. So it's pretty much what keeps me going right now. So how was Turkey? Turkey uh, was was pretty pretty amazing. I, I'd always want to uh, visit Turkey. Uh, I always wanted to kind of I always wanted to go to Hagia Sophia, um, and I had the opportunity to lay down in the middle of the Hagia Sophia and photograph the dome. So I just kind of experienced that space. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Every architect should do that, and yeah. I have not, so I'm jealous. <laughs> And what was your, what was your, uh, did you feel safe in Turkey? I mean, I know that a lot of people are a little wary of traveling to that region right now, but, uh, what was your experience like in that respect? It was interesting. I think, um, you know, I had the questions from family, is it safe to go to Turkey? I said, well, they're a NATO ally, so I don't think there's a whole big issue there, but, um, second to the last day, we, the last, uh, city we were in, um, in the Cappadocia region, they were getting cancellations because the State Department just issued warnings for uh, to not travel to Turkey. Um, and I think part of the the problem with that is that it's not really been reported a lot here. Um, but I think forty or so diplomats and their family members were captured by ISIL and were held hostage for a period of time. And I think most of them were released. But of course, Turkey borders uh, northern Syria, and now we're they're experiencing um, some issues on a border town uh, where a lot of Syrian refugees are are gathering with uh, ISIL, capturing a city there. So, um, but generally, we I it was no less safe than going to New York City. So uh, it was pretty <laughs> pretty remarkable uh, place to be in. So, and was the food good? The food is good. It's a little difficult for a vegetarian to eat because you wind up eating a lot of the same food. But we were fortunate in that uh, our host was uh, able to get all of the restaurants to go to other restaurants to get food for us. So, <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah. So you got to eat at more than one restaurant. So that's always a, a benefit. Yes, yes. And we had to, we were actually <clears throat> able to eat at a restaurant near the Blue Mosque that Bill Clinton made famous. And uh, now, whenever you get uh, whenever you're guided through Istanbul, um, if the tour guide will happily point out, this is the place where the hippies eat. <laughs> the hippies. <laughs> the hippies eat at this restaurant. So it's been made famous by hippies and Bill Clinton. <laughs> that's that's two real strong endorsements. Yeah, as it far is. In my book, yeah. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. Wow. And Ken, uh, so where did you stay when you were in Turkey? Um, the cities we, we were in Istanbul for three days. Then we went to, uh, we flew to Trabzon, uh, which is up on the Black Sea. And then we drove to Ezrum, um, kind of through the mountain pass. And then uh, along the Silk, Silk Road to um, Sivas. Um, and then into um, Cappadocia. Very cool. Yeah. Staying in hotels the whole time? Yes. Our last hotel we stayed at was in um, Cappadocia is famous for a lot of their uh, cave cities. So we stayed in the hotel. Uh, our last hotel was kind of in a, in a cave. Kind of in a cave. Yeah. It was like half, half, in half a cave. cave, half hot tub. Yeah, it was, it was pretty <laughs> pretty remarkable experience, yeah. 
But did it did it feel like you were in a cave? I mean, did, were you touching the stone walls, and was there floor covering, or what? What what was the sort of interior environment? Um, yeah, you could y- yes, uh, b- both. Um, there was uh, really f- well finished stone floors. The rooms were f- very well finished. It wasn't like it was. Uh, you know, uh, a Marriott or a Hyatt, um, installed in a cave or, <laughs> but the, you know, a lot of the finishes were very, um, very well done. Um, very in keeping with the, in the, the environment, but obviously upgraded with, um, you know, in terms of the plumbing fixtures. And, um, so it was really, um, yeah, it was kind of a hybrid of both, but generally the, you know, you're touching cave walls and, you know, you're kind of feeling yeah. that all out. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, uh, there's a, a photo or two that you can share with us for the, uh, for the show notes. Oh, sure. Our listeners can check out. Yeah, absolutely. Great. I have plenty awesome. of those. So Amelia, um, you have been super busy lately covering events for Arconnect. Um, can you tell us a little bit about those? Absolutely. Oh my gosh. I feel like I've been all over the place the last month or so. Um, I went recently down to San Diego uh, for a conference at the University of uh, California, San Diego's Salk Institute about neuroscience and architecture. I don't know if anyone else has kind of been tracking this, but it's the second time this conference has happened. Um, it happens every couple of years. Second time at the Salk Institute, which uh, the, for the topic neuroscience and architecture is completely perfect. You cannot go to anyone who's ever been to the Salk Institute. You can't go and not have some type of uh, experience. <laughs> it's hard to explain, but once you go there, it's amazing. Um, and so you're really aware of how architecture changes your brain and how your brain is involved in, or you're, you have to understand, or you try to understand exactly how your brain interprets space. Um, super interesting conference. Um, it's from the Academy of Neuroscience for Architecture. So anyone who's super interested in that or, or even interested at all in like just phenomenology and more of the critical discourse around that. Totally uh, recommend checking them out. And uh, we'll have some coverage on, on our connect soon as well yeah. from, from what you you're going to, yeah. yeah, I'm going to drop a doozy of, <laughs> of a piece. Um, I think it's a really exciting uh, topic in general that has so much to do with so many different disciplines, but can really show up in architecture. Um, we recently posted also to the news, how in the, Nobel Prize winners for medicine and physiology this year um, actually presented were awarded for research on basically wayfinding um, navigation, how the brain interprets space is like in the most general sense. So absolutely, that's going to have implications for architecture in the near future or imminent future. So very excited about that. And yeah. uh, Go ahead. Don. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, uh, I wanted to just note there's a thread in the discussion forums right now on phenomenology. I, I skimmed it this morning while I was making my coffee and I did not dig into it deeply at all, but there's people talking about it. Um, but also I, you know, Salk has also always been a real touchstone for me. And when I was first studying architecture, I remember hearing um, an interview with a scientist who worked in the building, no relationship to architecture whatsoever, but he said, you cannot not experience this building and the building lifts lifts you it just lifts Mm. you to be in this space so this is someone who has no inclination or care about architecture but he got it i think that's amazing awesome i gotta check that out so i can add it on we'll include a link to that that discussion in the show notes as well great cool 
But yeah, um, other than that, Paul just uh, got also a recent trip to more local downtown LA for the Atlantic City Lab conference, um, which is a couple of days of a lot of politicians talking peripherally about architecture. <laughs> so that was interesting and a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. You, we, uh, we published uh, your, your report today um, from that event, correct? Yes, definitely. So uh, a quick kind of news item about how most of the topics of the conference were all about the sharing economy. And you can take that phrase to mean as derogatory a term or as exciting a term as you like. Pretty much every angle was taken at the conference. Um, a lot of discussion about how different businesses like uh, Airbnb, Uber, uh, all of these different sharing economy systems are actually going to start changing city infrastructure and how politicians can adapt to that, but also not bend over backwards to, um, you know, just let the private <laughs> entities run all over them. So it's a super interesting conference. And um, I encourage people to visit the news post because there's also some great coverage by um, the local NPR radio affiliate uh, KPCC. They recorded a bunch of the panels that took place there. Um, and you can listen to them online. So I encourage people to check that out and we'll, we'll post it to the show notes as well. Oh, those are just really important topics that I think, uh, we'll be seeing a lot more of on Archonnect. um, you know, issues of, uh, you know, how technology and, and these new social businesses are, are affecting cities and, and the built environment. So we'll, we'll definitely be covering that more on the website as well as probably in the podcast. Donna? I just, City Lab, the Atlantic City City Lab is some of the best urban coverage right now going on. It, it's it's pretty amazing. They have great articles all the time about um, how all kinds of things are affecting cities. So, yeah. They are. Right. <laughs> yeah, they're a powerhouse. Okay, so <laughs> I think we're ready to uh, to uh, get into the meat of this uh, podcast, and, and uh, which which is basically going over some of the stories that we've been that we've been reading on the site. Um, I th we're going to start this first episode with talking about probably the most commented article this week on, on Arconnect, which uh, was a news post in reference to an article published by Leanne Chang, who most Arconnect readers recognize from the famous Harvard uh, GSD school blog, where she has famously uh, mastered the art of the live blog, which uh, are all archived in her blog, uh, which she still keeps active, uh, thankfully, which is, it's, it's a really amazing resource. And we are fortunate to have her with us. Leanne, are you there? I am. Thanks for having me, Paul. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, uh, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about, about the, the job you have right now, um, which I believe is your first job out of, out of architecture school. Is that correct? It is my first job. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm very happy to be the director of research and information at the Association for, Le for Collegiate Schools of Architecture. And that may, be so may sound fancy to you, but I don't direct anyone. I just direct myself. Um, and I direct the research. We're a small shop. We're seven people. Um, and so that's our staff. And we're a membership-based organization um, and our constituents, our members, are all the architecture schools that have accredited programs in the United States and Canada, as well as a number of other schools um, with with programs that are not accredited in the United States, in Canada, as well as in um, internationally. Well, I'm really excited that you that the ACSA got you because you know we've we've uh, we've had you active on Arconnect for a long time, and I think that uh, you know there couldn't be a better voice 
to fill that to fill that role. Um, so this week, the the post that has generated a lot of discussion on the site, as well as across the the internet, um, was the series of of uh, infographics that that you created charting the progress of uh, women's roles in architecture. Can you tell mm. us a little bit about about the research and 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 what these infographics communicate? Absolutely. So oftentimes when we're talking about diversity, people will say, you know, 10, 20 years from now, it's going to look a lot different. That implies that because there are plenty of women in architecture school right now, we just have to wait for these people to get out into the workforce and move up the ranks. So we wanted to know, is this true? Or have there been robust numbers in of women in architecture school for a while? And for whatever reasons, these women are not continuing on and succeeding at the same rates as men. What we actually found and what we showed in these data graphics is that it's both. Architecture is getting more gender balanced over time, over some metrics, particularly um, the number of NCARB record applicants has been sort of steadily marching up over the last few decades. Um, but in other metrics, there looks like there's a st substantial leaky pipeline problem. So for example, the number of female students and graduates has stabilized over the past decade at around 40%. And the number of women working in architect roles um, in the economy has also stopped increasing and has not gone much higher than 25%. So between 40% and 25%, you have this big gap, um, you know, and it's a stable gap um, for over the last decade. So that's actually a leaky pipeline problem and not simply we have to wait for these people to graduate from school. They've been graduating from school for a while and they haven't been moving on at the same rates as, as their male counterparts. If we look at awards, for example, um, the share of awards of the top awards in the profession um, that is going to women has been increasing by about 5% each decade at a at quite a steady rate. Um, but it's still low. If we continue at the rate that we're going now, we'll be waiting until 2080 to see a 50-50 split. And I got to put Whoa. out there, yeah, right? <laughs> Whoa. 2080. So, but, you know, and it's not that 50-50 has to be the measure of success. But, you know, just to say there are a lot of people who want to see things change substantially from where we are right now today. Wow. So there's a good chance this is not going to happen before the world ends, according to... Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. One thing I noticed was in in your uh in your reporting was that in Canada, uh women make up almost fifty percent of leadership positions in architectural academia. Which Absolutely. is which is so different than the stats we have here in the US. Absolutely. There's quite a big difference um, on on the two sides of this border um, between, you know, in academic architecture leadership um, and in terms of the gender split. So in the United in, in Canada, it's it's looking pretty close to even. In the United States, if we're looking at school directors, heads and chairs, it's twenty-seven percent of these are female. If we're looking at a more select, smaller group, um, that's deans only, we're looking at 19% um, are female. And that's the trend that we're seeing throughout this data, that when you're looking at more prestigious positions, positions that are harder to get, um, that represent higher le levels of success in academia or in practice, um, the, the percentage of, of those people who are women is, is smaller. Um, and, and so it's interesting, why is there that difference between Canada and the United States? Um, genetically, 
there's not that much of a difference. Um, but there's this huge difference in, um, in the career outcome. So that sort of speaks to this question of, are there, are there different interests? Are there different aptitudes between men and women that account for the entire difference? And we can get into that later. There's a lot of interesting things, a lot of interesting data on those questions in particular. But I think um, the bottom line for me, Paul, when you mentioned that statistic, is that it's not um, the entire, the entire s- scope of the difference in the United States um, is not likely accounted for by these inherent biological differences between men and women. Yeah, I, I, you know, when those, um, the chart first came out and the Atlas project has been, um, has been bookmarked on my computer for ever since it started. And I think the graphics are amazing and the information is really interesting to dig through. But when that chart came out on, um, the number of women in leadership positions in schools, I just was floored, just floored by it. It's, it's shocking to me that we have close to parity in numbers of students. And then in the region I'm in, the central Midwest, out of um, almost 30 positions, we have four women. That's it. It's just stunning to me. And there's been so much uh, churning in the leadership positions in architecture schools lately. And I just, I can't help but keep counting down every time. Oh, they hired another man. Oh, this one hired another man. (laughs) Like, I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's shocking to me. I was wondering, Leanne, I, I really liked the, the infographics for a lot of reasons, but one in particular was it's just the presentation of, of the data I thought was very clean and simple, and I really appreciated that. Um, and it also reminded me of something that is kind of on the opposite end of the uh, let's just present some data and let people make their own <laughs> idea of it. Has anyone heard of the feminist wall of shame? Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot of, <laughs> so, um, for you people should who explain don't know, it, Amelia. Yeah. yeah, I would love to. Um, so for people who don't know, and I'm sure, um, this has come up on our before and it's been referenced in a few forums and such on the topic, but effectively it's an organization of anonymous people who post on via Tumblr, I think now, um, lecture series and basically academic scenarios where the gender breakdown, particularly in architecture, but also in other, um, in other, uh, institutions is completely ridiculously disparate. So you have a lecture series at some university for the fall semester that has 12 speakers and there's one woman. And, um, then the feminist wall of shame will post this, the link to that event and then say, you know, one out of 12 women, shame on you. (laughs) So I think that that's, I brought that up just as an example of how, you know, how automatically provocative, uh, talking about gender and architecture is, but how much I appreciated, uh, these infographics in particular, because I think they do a really good job of trying to just present the data as it is without making too much of a, um, wagging finger motion. So I don't know, maybe Leanne, you could talk a little bit about that, about how you try to balance, um, that difficulty of presenting data, but also not editorializing and Donna as well. I know you had some thoughts about this. Yeah, I, I wanted to say uh, one of the things I think the feminist wall of shame is so um, so so successful in is showing photographs of people and showing look here's a here's a here's a dozen speakers at this conference and these faces are all male, um, and then I think that that we are visual people we architects so Leanne's um, the Atlas Project graphs to me are so perfectly done because they really present this information in this graphic way the one of the women how it stair steps up to this tiny little bit of stepping you know stone at the top i think is just brilliant 
It's wonderful. <laughs> I think we've all felt like that sometimes, men and women, probably, and as we proceed <laughs> in our careers. Certainly. Um, absolutely. But, Amelia, to your question about balancing, um, you know, presenting data in a neutral way versus editorializing, you know, um, because the ACSA were a membership-based organization, I was saying, and and the architecture schools are our members. So we have, that's a really broad constituency. And as a staff member at the ACSA, it's not my role to push an individual opinion, but our schools have been consistently interested in this question of diversity across all different kinds of dimensions. Um, you know, this particular post was about gender, but we're also interested in ethnicity. Um, you know, we want to dig into socioeconomic status and other factors as much as we can um, to the extent that data allows. And that's a whole other conversation. Are those, are those areas that you plan on exploring in future reports like this one? Absolutely. Absolutely. We have, we have a little bit in the past. Um, some of our past Atlas slides have focused particularly on um, either ethnicity or ethnicity in, in combination with, with gender. Um, and especially given the really positive response that we've had um, and all the conversation that's been generated by this, um, this series of charts on gender, um, we're really looking forward to expanding this. Ken, I know that I know that you've got some strong opinions on this. What are, what are you thinking? Well, I mean, the first question I had was: is that given that um, ACSA is, is a member membership um, where schools are actually are members of the organization, what's been their response? I mean, generally, this is kind of food for us to kind of feed on, but ultimately, you pres- you're putting these these uh, graphics together to kind of demonstrate at least to the members, what's going on. So what's been, have they they had any response to this? It's actually been really positive. Um, The responses that we have gotten, both from our member schools, as well as from the collaterals, from AIA, NCARB, NAB, and so on, they've been really, really supportive of this. I think what's interesting here is that, you know, we've got a difficult situation. We've got um, a profession that, in measurable terms, is not, um, as as balanced across gender, across ethnicity, across other dimensions that that a lot of us would like, it's not any one person or any one organization or any one school's fault. Um, so you know, all of these people working at these organizations, at these schools, you know, meanwhile, um, we're, we're all you know trying to push the boat in the same direction, and we're trying to figure out how to do that. Yeah, because in in the meantime, since this since this your first graphic has been put out, I know that Renee Chang um, at University of Minnesota has moved to a lower position as an associate dean, where she has been leading the school before. And even the the link I kind of posted on our our topics is it's kind of interesting the way it was all worded. Um, so I'm just I'm struck by. Her stepping down and a male um, stepping up to lead the school, it's kind of, you know, lending more food to this, um, to this kind of further this discussion along. It's, it's kind of interesting to me that that, that actually happened. So this is Donna again. I met uh, Leanne and Renee Cheng at the Emerging Professionals uh, Summit in January in um, Albuquerque. And... Um, Part of what ties into this discussion is that Renee was a was a a female leader at the in a leadership position at the school, and um, I know one of the things she's been working on in recent years has been um, uh, I, I would say the easiest term for it, it's not really a co op, but it's getting students to have some real world experiences and working in real world um, environments, solving problems that like architects actually would do. Um, and I think that that's one of the, the areas of, I mean, sorry, I'm going to be accused of being sexist here, but I think that's a, an area that 
female leaders have been focusing on is giving, you know, working with these emerging professionals, these young students and these young professionals and sort of um, helping them to move up in their careers. And so to me, to see a, a woman who has been leading a, a great program to um, introduce students to the real world of architecture and working, uh, to see her step aside, I'm hoping it's because she's going to work far more on that initiative. Um, because I think that's, again, one of the things that uh, certainly a lot of the women I have worked with have been very involved in is, um, is mentoring. Sorry, right back to the mentorship discussion. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, Donna, I think that's an important topic to bring up because regardless of whether or not there's some type of logical justification as to why there's such a gigantic gender gap in, in, that we see in this data that the ACSA has put to us, Regardless of whether there's a true, like, justifiable reason for that, it's still so broad that there has to be some way to just begin to address it. And I think um, mentorship, kind of bringing that into the conversation is a really important point to maybe jump off of. Like, maybe there is a substantive difference in how females are mentored versus males. Um, maybe there's some interesting interchange that could happen when that relationship is paid attention to from the gender perspective. So I think... What's really important to recognize in the gender discussion is that it's never just about gender, right? It's like the gender is a subtopic, but the real thing is about emerging professionals or employment opportunities or just growing Absolutely. as an architect. If I could jump in there, I think that's totally correct. And that's another reason why you can have these virtuous vicious, or vicious circles where one demographic or group or subculture is underrepresented or overrepresented in a profession. Um, at that same um, Emerging Professional Summit, which was so great, I had the chance to meet Bill Stanley, and he and his wife, Ivanu Love Stanley, were among the first black architecture graduates from Georgia Tech, among the first black licensed architects in that part of the country, and among the first black firm owners. And they're still in practice. They're not, they're not that old. Um, this is an ancient history, and it, it blew my mind to just to realize that there really hasn't been that much time since the profession has opened its doors to women and to minorities. Um, that you know the door, the door is still opening. Let's say um, to the extent that you you know you can have someone who who was truly a pioneer like that and who, who is still alive. It's still um, it's not that many generations away. You know, so architecture has historically been described as a gentleman's profession, a profession where architects were almost always male from wealthy families, um, white, and and people who you know, as Michael Porter, um, a prominent Canadian, uh, Californian architect, sorry, has, um, has described, you know, people who pursued the career as a symbol of philanthropy more than for a financial gain. Um, <laughs> and if you think about that, right, there's, there's generations of, of role models and of mentors. And, and it is, I think it is really hard to, um, to, to make change when, when these things are so embedded in our culture. Well, and, and I, I, you know, I, I think that um, this, this notion of it as a gentleman's profession is really, to me, very archaic. I mean, my, I went to architecture school in the 80s, and the sense that I have had in my career from all corners has been, well, we, you know, we, we suffered, we worked hard, and you young interns are going to spend two years doing bathroom elevations because you have to suffer through it too. Um, part of <laughs> my topic, part of my, my talk I gave at the AIA conference was, and I used several of the charts from from the Atlas Project's um, graphics, not just on gender, but on um, what other disciplines architecture graduates are going into because they frankly get tired of this cycle of abuse of coming out of school and being told, yeah, you have to suffer for a while now. And I did, and you, I did it, so you can do it. And what I said at the end of my talk was that 
attitude is changing, whether people like it or not. And we had best keep up with it as a profession so that we don't lose all these great people because they just say, forget it. I'm not getting any respect. I'm going to leave. Ken, did you have a follow-up to that? Sure. I, <clears throat> one of the, what, it's difficult for for me actually to be in the conversation, of course, but um, I find my way in it in that um, I, I kind of, I'm starting to recognize my own privilege and I'm, and that's partly because my fiance is really involved in, uh, she's very involved in lean in, uh, the lean in movement with Cheryl, uh, Cheryl Sandberg. And she leads all of these, uh, groups in, um, in our neighborhood and in our state. We've had Cheryl Sandberg at my house. Cool. Wow. Um, wow. <laughs> wow. Yes. Not to, not to like, uh, what do you serve Cheryl Sandberg? That was, what cocktail do you make for her? It was, it was all vegetarian. It was all vegetarian. Okay. <laughs> all okay. vegetarian, gluten-free. <laughs> so, um, but one of the things that's, it's struck me about a lot of this is that there's a us and them attitude. And I think, you know, even when I go to work and I was talking to one of the um, intern architects in my office and I asked her, I said, you know, one of the things I presented to her is that I'm part of the problem here. When I go in and I say to everyone there that I hate taking vacations because I really like to stay at work and keep motivated and st keep working on the project is that what am I representing to young interns with families? I'm representing that there is no, no, that if you're not fully committed in there all the time, then you're less than. So part of it is trying to recognize that I need to change my own behavior around how I represent myself and how I look at the profession and try to focus on that, you know, just because I don't have a family and I don't plan on having a family, that life-work balance is important. And if I can't model that correctly and be, uh, be a mentor in, in just in terms of my actions, then what am I saying to those that are coming after me that work is the only thing that matters, that you have to grind it out, that you have to be there on weekends and the project is the only thing that matters. And, and I realize that I'm part of the problem. And I think from that standpoint, not a lot of people are looking at that and saying, what am I doing either unconsciously or consciously to keep that from being something that becomes a hindrance to those who are in the profession rather early on and who are focused on trying to get everything done and trying to have a family and trying to have a life. Just This is just me personally talking, but I wouldn't be so hard on yourself. I don't <laughs> think that. My personal point of view on this is that it's not, you know, it's not, you know, or if you look at it statistically, I guess, it's not any one person. I don't, I don't think the goal should be that um, th that we establish a different way of practice, um, and that is in itself homogenous. But you know, I would love to see a world where we find we make more space for more diverse kinds of practices, ways of working, styles of working, and so on to exist. Right? There's always going to be workaholics. You know, it's part of architecture culture. I you know, I think that's great. I, I think it'll also be great the more that we make space, um, you know, for, for for different kinds of cultures and different kinds of people. Um, Ken, back to your other, um, your other thought about all of us having to own the problem versus it being an us versus them situation. I think this is so, so important. One of the things I noticed on the Arconet comments um, that, that were cropping up um, on the blog post, um, people were saying, you know, I treat everyone the same, like, are you calling me sexist? And, you know, and, 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 and people were getting defensive about that. Um, and, and I think... I think that's a really tricky point. You know, 
psychologists have consistently found that we have unconscious biases. That's not just white men who have unconscious biases, but that's all of us. You know, psychologists find that women consistently demonstrate biases that are unconscious against other women. You know, minorities do so against other minorities of their group or another group and so on. And statistically speaking, any one of us is more likely to judge a white male in this culture as more competent, more likable, more qualified than a female candidate, a black candidate, a Hispanic candidate, and so on, in a laboratory setting where these candidates have have been given the exact same profile. So that's the difficult thing, because we generally don't like to think that we're sexist or racist, and most of us aren't consciously. So it can be really confusing and offensive to feel like you're being accused of holding certain prejudices or, or you know, pushing the profession in the wrong way. Um, but it's something that we really all have to own collectively. I, I agree with you to, um, on a lot of that. But as a <laughs> white guy, I, I'm going to push harder. <laughs> Because I, 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 because I think I should. And I think one of the things I, I said before um, when we were talking about this topic the other day was that, so white guys want their cake and eat it too. They want to go out and they want to say that women and men and women are different. We're just fundamentally different. Biologically, psychologically, emotionally, we're different. And at the same time, they say they treat everybody the same way. You can't have it both ways in this world. We we can't be different and then be treated the same. There needs to be not just equality, but I think uh, I think Leanne, you pointed this out before, ter- equity. And I was talking to my fiance about. It. I said, "What is it? What does it mean? What does equity really mean?" And and she gave me this great like description. It was very graphic about how. People who are trying to see over a fence, they're all different heights, but you give each person a box so that you kind of level so that everybody can see over at the fence at the same time. So if we need, if some people need more time to kind of do the things they need to do, that doesn't mean that they're getting special treat. I mean, they're not getting, you know, they're not, uh, how do I, how do I frame it? I mean, I, I think that it's necessary to treat people um, equitably and, and understand that we all have uh, different uh, struggles and that we should help everyone kind of um, meet those struggles together. And it, this, it seems a lot of the comments on the website um, are really uh, frustrating because they, they're, they're either trollish or they say something and, or they would say something because they're anonymous, but they don't really mean it in, in the real life situation. I, you know, so. I have been saying every, and I have said this on our connect when this issue has come up in the past, um, that, that, that policies that are good for women in the workplace. Cause we talk about this women need, you know, time off for having babies or whatever policies that are good for women are good for families. So if you're a man and you are in a family, these policies are good for you too, because if we're talking about equitable treatment, then you're, you're going to benefit from it too. If there's a work-life balance that's valued in a firm, you're going to get that too. It's not just, as you were saying much earlier, Leanne, about necessarily about gender or, or, um, ethnicity. It's about these much broader topics of how these things relate to our work environment and our, and our lives. Well, can I just add one more comment to that? Uh, what we've been talking about is that what's, what's ultimately frustrating about people talking about this in our profession is that we're problem solvers, right? We are, we, we've been sometimes classified as jack of all trades, master of none. And part of that thing I like about that idea is that we have a lot of our we have our hands in a lot of different disciplines and a lot of different areas, but somehow we can bring it all back together and solve the problem. So I don't understand why this problem seems 
um, unsolvable given our vast knowledge about how to solve problems. So <laughs> to say, push it off and to say, well, it's society's problem, which it is. It's not just architecture's problem. It's not just this profession's problem. It's all of our problems, but it's solvable within our profession. And we have the skill sets to do that. And I think a lot of people just want to kind of, they want to do what is really done very well by uh, the ruling classes. They want to look for the places where they can divide and conquer and put divisions out there so that they can separate us. This is a problem that architecture can solve. And it's it's solvable within, definitely within our lifetime. I shouldn't have to wait, you know, 30 something or 40 something years to have this problem solved. I mean, it could happen sooner than that. And we have the skill sets to do Absolutely. That. Um, you know, I think a really great example of how a profession can change its culture is if you look back to computer science in the 1960s, computer programming was actually considered, as woman, wo considered to be women's work as late as the 60s. Um, there's a 1967 issue of Cosmopolitan magazine that quotes a female computer scientist, and she's saying, you know, this, this work is just like planning a dinner. You have to plan ahead. And you schedule so that everything, every dish is ready when you need it. And women are therefore naturals at computer programming. And there's a really interesting um, historian at Indiana University named Nathan Ensmenger. Um, and he, he's, 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 he's dug up a lot of this work um, on the, the changing gender roles within computer, computer science. Because, of course, as we know, it's so overwhelmingly um, male right now. And I think some people have even found recently that it's that, that they're actually like, unlike architecture, where we're actually making some progress, um, computer science in, in, in some respects has actually been getting more male in the workforce over the last little while. Um, there was actually a really but, interesting podcast on, uh, from new tech city about, uh, women in, uh, tech, the tech industry, especially, uh, as programmers. That's a, that's a podcast worth checking out just to, just to note. Yeah, totally second that. Great podcast. Right. So it just goes to show that there are these cultural definitions and sort of cultural expectations that really shape, you know, to what extent people are participating in a field or not. Um, and those things can change historically. Absolutely. I think also what came up so much in the different arguments that people would kind of pose to either defend the statistics or engage with them somehow uh, on the online, on the news post, uh, they, the, uh, the, um, Ability to just kind of not see how insane the gap is and just quibble over the personal aspects of this. So Ken and Donna and Leanne, you were all talking about before how it's so easy for everyone to get really individually defensive. Commenters say something like, oh, well, I don't treat people like that. You know, I'm blind to gender. So I'm just I'm purely merit based. That's not my problem. That's something else that other people need to deal with. And that's incredibly short-sighted because you see this insanely huge gap. There has to be some reason to really address that. There has to be like something fundamentally wrong when something is so huge. Um, so I don't know, maybe there's something else you guys have thought of um, in particularly in response to those comments, perhaps about like why you think it is that it's so hard for people to see beyond themselves in these scenarios or just any comments you have in, in general. You know, I, I think, uh, one of the, the one of the things that keeps coming up is that um, that I I feel like I am harping on this, like I'm saying it over and over again. I mean, I feel like I've been having these kinds of discussions for thirty years. <laughs> um, um, but in regards to the people on the thread who are commenting on it, I'm not necessarily trying to convince those people. Um, a lot of people, you know, I don't. This is a, this is an internet 
forum. I don't know these people. I don't know what their background is. I don't know where they're coming from with this. I don't know if I have any possibility. It could be a dog, Donna. It could be. It could be a dog. It could be a dog typing about how all the <laughs> girl dogs in the neighborhood. Um, I, I, you know, I say this because I know, and I don't, maybe Paul would enlighten us at some point on this. I know that there are more people who read the forums than post on them. And again, bring, coming back to this idea of mentorship, if I can put something up there and make an argument that will convince someone who's reading, who, who has never heard that argument before, because I've been making these arguments for 30 years, um, you know, then maybe I'm helping someone. And that's why I keep harping on it. And maybe it starts to sound like, okay, well, JLAX, I'm attacking you, but I'm not. I'm not even really directing my comments to him or her so much as I'm addressing them because I think these are topics that we need to talk about. And Arconet gives us this great opportunity for them to do it. <laughs> well, actually, you know, uh, there, there's a lot of uh, psychoanalysis that can be put towards online commenting, which and it and it has been. You know, it's uh, it's it's really difficult to have a valuable discussion with a group of people that you don't know, nor do you know their identity. But um, you know, that that's part of the reason why we started this podcast. You know, it's an opportunity to talk about these things in a more moderated environment. But um, I mean, in general, what are what is everyone's thoughts on on the way that the that the discussion has has formed about this topic? Is it is it uh, disturbing? Is it I wouldn't say it's disturbing. I think it's kind of it it breaks down along the same cast of characters that occur on Arcanact. I mean, there's you've got some people who are very well read and and on a lot of different topics, and you've got some people who just don't care, and you got the Tea Party types or the really conservative uh, types out there, and you've got the button pushers. Um, but they but the problem is is that they never really look at the charts. I mean, what what is the response to the chart about? architecture's highest honors when 82% of the top awards are going to men and only 18% of the women. What is the response to that chart? It's a fact. It's not something that's really debatable. Um, so I, I want to hear, you know, when they start talking about stuff that issues that relate to the topic, then we can have a discussion and we can kind of move that along. But until they really respond to that particular, not just that particular chart, but because I'm focusing on that, but until they respond to those, it, it seems like the only time they really have anything to say about gender is when they want to bash <laughs> Zaha Hadid, and then they, <clears throat> they want to get on. Then they want to. They have. They're all full of opinions at that point. But but they never want to respond to facts. They want to. It's kind of. It's interesting because they they're rather emotional <laughs> in their responses. They're not fact based. So here we have a fact based presentation that's just pointing these things out, and these typically white guys are responding emotionally. Now you could take whatever you want from what my what I'm saying, but they're they're shrill in their responses, and I, I don't think Donna is harping on. I think these are really things that have to be present in front of everybody's face at all times. It's just, it, it disturbs me that um, my first experience with, uh, outside of architecture school, with women in the profession happened when I came to the Midwest. And I remarked to one of the senior um, principals at the firm I first started at, I said, it was striking about how strong these, these women were at this firm. I had never been around that many women in architecture in the professional setting and it was just struck by how how confident they were how strong they were how how they gave voice to their concerns and they were quite free and open to do that and it was it was it struck me 
and it's it's kind of it's resonated with me and i don't like working at firms where predominantly male um operated firms i like working at a firm where you get different opinions you get different voices you get different experiences and it's kind of kind of bizarre to be at a firm that i was at in new jersey so it's been a good experience here. Ken, I think you're being hard on your hard on these um, these Arcanet commenters a little bit. They're not necessarily white men. They could be white dogs. Um, we don't <laughs> actually know that. Um, <laughs> but um, but you know, one of the things. Well, there were two things actually that that other things that came out in the comments that I thought um, were actually worth talking about. You know, one was a suggestion that maybe men and women have different aptitudes, and I thought maybe it's true. And you know, we see these studies. Um, you know, coming up fairly often. And, and so I did a roundup um, of the recent data on this. And there have been a lot of meta studies that have covered millions of participants in hundreds of, of individual research projects to kind of round up uh, uh, scientific consensus on these questions. And they've actually found no significant difference in math or verbal skills. There was another meta, meta study that found that there are some differences. Um, this study found that actually um, men are more variable. You know, the, the the stars are greater, and the and the the weaklings, let's say, are weaker. Whereas women uh, tend to cluster uh, closer to the center in terms of their abilities. Um, but they also found that females have a slight edge in verbal abilities, and men have a very slight edge in visual spatial abilities. Which is interesting. That's obviously relevant to architecture. But even the authors of these studies are really at pains to to emphasize the size of these cognitive differences aren't enough to explain the great disparities that we have in career outcomes, uh, for example, um, that we're seeing in architecture in the United States. And I think, Paul, what, we were, what you were bringing up um, earlier in terms of uh, the, the relatively much closer gender balance in the Canadian um, scene of, of architecture schools speaks to that point, that this, these are not um, biological inevitabilities. Exactly, Leanne. As you said, these are—it's not biologically inevitable. And I think part of the what the chart shows is that we've also had this great history of women just, frankly, not very obviously not being given an equal opportunity. I mean, you know, fifty years ago in our in our country, a woman couldn't get a, a checking account on her own um, without a husband. So, <laughs> you know, it's no wonder that there weren't Pritzker Prize winners fifty years ago in architecture. I don't even know if the Pritzker goes back that far. Um, but the question now, to me, the most interesting aspect of those graphs to me is that the so many women now are starting out in architecture school and then are just not following through. And so I think all of the the other information on other people that are dropping out of architecture um, traditional practice and moving into other fields that some of which you've touched on in Atlas Project, um, I think that will also add a lot to this discussion. And as I've said on the discussion online. We just, we need to talk about this. You know, if you don't like the charts, I'm sorry, they are what they are. Um, but we, we, you know, the good, who, who could say that it's not a good idea to talk about stuff, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I just, that's why I dismissed the, uh, that's why I dismissed the aptitude, uh, point. I just dismissed it out of hand because if aptitude was the issue, we wouldn't have 40% in, um, you know, getting NCAR council records, they would, we would see, you know, 40% maybe going into school and then dropping off. It's not, it doesn't seem to me an aptitude issue. It seems to be more relegated to, you know, either family like work balance, not seeing the mentors, not seeing women in, in leadership positions in firms and just saying, what am I dedicating myself to if I can't see where I can't see where I'm going to be because I can't see that person who's already there. So the aptitude thing is, is I, I have to say it's, it's a canard 
it's it's absolutely um it's I'm just saying this, it's a bullshit argument by a bunch of white guys. <laughs> or white or dogs. White dogs. <laughs> well, as yeah. not that we're equating the two, but you know. There's some beautiful white dogs. Exactly. There. there are. I um, have one. I have one. I'll put, I'll put a picture of my dog in the show notes. Absolutely. Okay. Well, Great. All white dogs are welcome in the show notes. What about black dogs, Amelia? I, Brown dogs? You're totally right, Paul. All black dogs, all, all let's, colored Let's dogs. make that clear. <laughs> Okay, well, as Donna said, you know, this is a topic that definitely does need to be discussed. And I'm sure this is not the end of this discussion on this, on this topic in the Arconnect podcast. For this episode, I think we're going to have to wrap it up so that we can move on to some other topics. Uh, Leanne, thank you so much for, for uh, joining us today. Thank you, Paul. It's been a blast. And I hope you can join us again uh, in many other upcoming episodes. I look forward to it. Great. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Leanne. So, Amelia, um, you and Donna um, had a discussion recently about the uh, uh, a topic that that has also gotten a lot of attention on our connect. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Uh, so it's actually not that unrelated to the gender topic. Donna and I um, recently had a conversation with Haley Geip, uh, who Donna can speak a little bit more about uh, shortly. But we wanted to talk to Haley because she is involved with all of these changes that are going on um, at NCARB regarding the, their changes to the IDP program um, and in general, just restructuring what it means to be an intern um, in the architecture profession. So uh, Donna, can you refresh us? How do you actually know Haley and, and how did it, how did we come to talk with her? So Haley and I met at um, the emerging the AIA Emerging Professional Summit in January in Albuquerque. And basically, I w- what I would say is a sort of overall of that summit was AIA put together about, I think there were about 130 of us, um, students, recent graduates, and people from all of the collateral organizations. So AIA organized it, but it was NCARB, ACSA, NAAB, all in the same room. And we worked hard for three days. Um, and the AIA's attitude from that from that uh, from that summit on has been: um, we need to not just talk about this stuff. We need to come up with an action plan, and we need to implement some of this work. And so, um, after the summit, I had to drop out of my formal commitment with the emerging professionals because I have too many other things going on. But Haley has stayed involved, and she is now on the. Um, Future Title Task Force, uh, which Amelia, which is basically a, a committee of I think it's thirteen people, and they are discussing the future of titling in the um, in the profession. So what I think is really interesting about this is it relates not just to the, they sort of started they launched it with this idea of we're going to discuss interns um, and whether the word intern can be um, d- just abolished from the profession. Which this came directly out of the Emerging Professional Summit was standing up, everyone raising their hands and saying, "We want to get rid of the word intern." Um, but the future titling task force also will cover registered architects and the use of the term architect by people who already are registered and, and legally allowed to use it. So um, uh, Haley is a, a working. Ar- she's not yet registered. We had to clarify that in the the interview with her. Um, but she has been working real, uh, doing a lot of volunteer time with the AIA through the course of her career, and um, she's uh, she's just a, a ball of energy. And I think she's just going to really push to make some great changes. Um, the uh, the write up that you did, Amelia, of the future title task force, I thought was just totally on target. It was 
a really good explanation of the issues and um, just very straightforward with saying, you know, this is a problem in our profession. Um, and apparently NCARB was not completely happy with your write-up. So um, we may talk a little more about that next week. Yes. Internal intrigue. There was a lot of that. Um, <laughs> but, I th- <laughs> but what also I think, Donna, you touched on this, and this is why I think it relates to the gender discussion is, you know, you were saying had this great emerging professionals conference and everything seemed so active and awesome. But then at the same time, there's something at the back of your head saying, yeah, but nothing's actually going to come of this. But then it did. Uh, And I think that's really amazing that a lot of times these institutions or these organizations that may seem rusty and difficult to get going are still very capable of doing momentous things and having momentous conversations. And so I think if we can do this about, you know, titling and um, licensure and IDP Gender is easily also one of those topics, not necessarily the, not necessarily the responsibility of NCARB, but totally within their range. So um, not, not challenging NCARB to do anything particularly right now, but these are some of the topics um, we will talk about the next podcast, hopefully. Absolutely. And, and I do, yeah, AIA has, and all of the organizations have just impressed me with, say, with the way they said, we're not going to write a report and put it on a shelf. They are actually doing a lot of these things, and I can talk about more of them next week. Sounds great. Cool. Anyone else have anything to add before we uh, round up for the first official Arconnect podcast? Is this the time where we started our endorsements? <laughs> oh yeah, let's uh, let's cut to that. Let's. You know what? Just that. before we before we move off onto the endorsements, I just wanted to uh, because we've only been able to cover really uh, the uh, the one topic this week. I just wanted to uh, just very quickly go over some of some of the uh, topics brought up in the news that are worth taking a look at on our connect um, as uh, you know, I think this is the third or fourth year that we've been sponsoring Arctober in uh, it's, which is a month long um, series of events, all kinds of events that happen in New York, uh, all related to, to architecture and design. So we've been, we've been doing a, a roundup uh, every few days of some of the, the best events that we've, selected to, uh, to make sure to uh, check out if you're in New York. Um, I thought today uh, we, we posted uh, news about uh, Snohetta um, getting selected to design the new Norwegian banknotes, which I thought was really quite interesting. So you can, you can get more information awesome. about that. Very cool. They have buildings buildings on their money they're starting really to cool approach buildings. switzerland with the uh, awesome. coolness factor <laughs> their currency that uh, switzerland has corbusier yeah <laughs> uh, and uh so uh, another interesting topic that i was kind of surprised with the response um orhan posted uh some kind of gossip news which um seems to be legit uh about a um a group of students at UC Berkeley in the landscape design program that reached out to a local landscape firm um, from a Latino organization at, at UC Berkeley. And they were, um, they were given a really racist response, basically telling, telling them to, uh, to get lost, that, that they, uh, this firm has no interest in, in participating or helping any type of Latino organization. Uh, that's a nice, a nice uh, summary of, of the of the, uh, the response. So I thought that was, that was interesting. Um, the response. That was, I, I, there has not been much discussion on that. I haven't weighed in cause I, in my heart do not want to believe it's real. I just don't want to believe that someone would really do that. Mm-hmm. From what I've read, the owner of the firm who 
wrote that allegedly says that her email was hacked and somebody else had done it. Why somebody hacked her email to write that specific response, I don't know. Uh, anyways, I was kind of surprised that the that in the comments uh, people were a little supportive of her, um, uh, as opposed to. I mean, the the reality is that this kind of racism racism does exist, and you know this kind of response is kind of par for the course these days. Anyways, um, and then also something that we've been covering uh, a lot in the last week has just been the World Architecture Festival. Um, concluded in Singapore, and we there have been a ton of uh, international projects that, that were awarded prizes from a jury of, uh, of peers, of architects around the world. Um, so we've been, we've been uh, posting those, those winners. Has anything stood out among any of you uh, on the site in the last week that you just wanted to get out there? Yeah, um, there's a few things that I just want to hit. I want to hit a news topic, a blog, um, and a thread um, the news one is one that, um, was just posted, I think yesterday and it kind of struck me was the David Ajay, uh, Sugar Hill apartments, um, that I'm, I'm hoping that that gets discussed a little more. I'm, I'm looking at the architecture and, and knowing a little bit about his work. It, it seems to be, it doesn't seem to be in line with what he um what he typically does so it's a little striking and all too eerily reminds me of um the riverside cedar riverside development here by ralph rapson in um, minneapolis in terms of its starkness and thinking about that as a as a housing housing type um for low-income people in new york city it's 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 brutalism is kind of striking in it so i'm a little concerned by that particular project um the blog that i'm really i'm always fascinated with and i'd love to see um her on one of the podcasts is uh, mitch McEwen's another architecture um i don't know if anybody's read any of her blog or familiar with her work at all yeah she's she's awesome she's she's tapped into something that i've so uh i think is missing and that's a kind of a social a social um a social consciousness but keeping a, a really interesting design aesthetic so it doesn't get kind of boiled down into that kind of you know that social architecture that i so loathe from like um from from the 60s it, it's much more intelligent much more um thought out and it has a real message behind it so her blog is one I'm really interested in, and I think I just got an email recently that she's actually moving to Detroit um, and looking for a space in Detroit. Um, she's got. I think I got a LinkedIn update that she got a new job. Okay. I, I that may be why. Okay, and she's uh, you know founder of Superfront and Office and McEwen Studios, so um, she's she's one I always enjoy uh, reading. Um, and then the thread I'm always interested in, in um, is don't take this the wrong way uh, because I think it's beyond the uh, I think it's beyond the title at this point. Arkanek, please boycott Israel. I think Tammuz is um, <laughs> Tammuz passion around um, around uh, divestiture in Israel is quite interesting, and it's it's consistently pushed to the top, and it seems to be pushing a lot of buttons, and I like any topic that kind of pushes buttons in the right way. So those are the three things I'm kind of interested in on our connect right now. Thanks. It's uh, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I, you actually, uh, my, my first one was going to be the David Edgey building and the Michael Kimmelman's article on that, um, which it, it's a, it's a challenging article. It's a challenging building. Um, it's a building that I honestly feel like I cannot judge or figure out or form an opinion on unless I were to see it in context, because I think, um, photographs certainly make it look sort of gloomy and overwhelming. And I just, I don't know that it is that it's also got such a complex program of, um, providing housing, but also a child focused, um, childcare center, you know, tying together the urban, um, fabric on a very sloping site. It, it seems very challenging and a, and a big prominent building for a very important architect in our country, in this country too. I think his first or one of his first, right? So, um, so that I was surprised there were not many comments on that post, but um, as of today, suddenly a whole bunch of the regulars came out and it looks like there's a lot of discussion going on. So maybe we'll keep talking about that next week. Um, the other thing I wanted to, to, to just mention was the jobs board. Um, job postings are up somewhat, if not just on Arconnect, then certainly in other places. Um, I think uh, I'm hearing rumors of going back to a pretty good level of employment um, among architects. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a good thing. Certainly with, you know, it's a more complex employment situation right now. Paul, did you want to say something about that? Yeah. Employment has skyrocketed since the, since the recession, um, especially on our job board. Um, you know, we, as opposed to a few years ago when, when, uh, we've, when we were receiving, you know, comments from employers about getting just absolutely swamped with applications when a job post, a job, a job ad was posted, uh, you know, these days it's, uh, employers are really having to compete with each other to find the talent. The, uh, job seekers are, are at an advantage right now. You know, they're able to pick and choose because there are a lot of jobs out there and there are not as many talented, uh, architects looking for work. So it's, uh, it's really, it's really, we've really seen a big inverse, um, compared to a few years ago. Yeah. So all those people that declined to get it licensed. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's, uh, <laughs> Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> they're going to be needed. Absolutely. They're going to be needed. <laughs> so Donna, I know that you have a uh, a yoga class that you need to get to. So we should. <laughs> I have got to get to yoga class this week. That's important. You need to stick to that. It's, a, it's an imperative. Balance. It's an imperative for my home life balance as well as my husband not strangling me. Yes. No. It's um. Yeah. I need to get. I need to get to yoga class because I'm a little crazy. Okay. Right now, so yeah. <laughs> so i'll take a picture of my dog and post it so you can put it on this on the show notes and um i just i'm super excited about this podcast i think it's going to be really fun and i'm eager to get some feedback from the forums about what um we talk about and what they want what people want to hear about um and i think it'll be neat to have a back and forth with uh with the website and the podcast that's what we're planning we're hopefully going to have a, a phone number up soon where people can call in and leave comments and even suggest topics uh we'll we're, we're planning on integrating those comments into our podcast in in coming episodes yeah i i'm really excited about it too i'm looking i'm looking forward to the day where we can look back at this episode and you know just uh laugh at how far we've come <laughs> <laughs> well you know we took on such an easy easy topic oh, yeah. for this first uh, episode so you know just a simple little yeah, topic about real, gender and black yeah. and white yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think, I think exactly we solved oh, it. it's just black and white we solved oh, yeah, it absolutely for sure. yeah. <laughs> put, the, put that away 
And you got to make sure when you put in the show notes that uh, this wasn't edited. This wasn't like. You know, <laughs> yeah. We're just talking. Kind of oh, stream of, oh, Ken, did you not get the script I sent you like two hours ago? <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Okay. That's why, that's why he went rogue and started talking about those cave, cave museums in the. Uh. <laughs> All right. Well, um, are there any final words? I'd like to add just one more endorsement. Actually, yeah. Uh, sorry, Amelia, to do... we skipped you. No, no. We skipped you. <laughs> well, no, I'm going to be short and sweet. Um, so, regarding to the uh, Sugar Hill project that Donna, both you and Ken uh, talked about, that is exactly the kind of project that is a fantastic capsule encapsulation of a lot of that was a lot of the things discussed at the City Lab conference, um, talking about how we can actually use architecture to exhibit these qualities of mixed use, mixed zoning uh, that can encourage these different types of economies to thrive. So I know the Sugar Hill Project is a super complex program and I don't, I, I can't comment on how successful it may be in achieving that, but I think how it's, I think it's really awesome how there should, any conversation around it um, can help bring up how um, public housing can be a real um sign of how we're trying to get these economic ideals brought into the actual architecture. So that's my endorsement for the week, for sure. And it's definitely a great project, uh, the complexity of the program and all of that. I think what struck me was immediately the the visual of this, con this precast concrete building and thinking about what does it look like 40 years from now? And they start, you know, you know what they call the Cedar Riverside in, in Minneapolis, they call it Little Mogadishu, oh, and man. it's really frustrating. I love the build. I love the buildings. Yeah. I don't hate the buildings. I actually think they're really, really interesting. Um, so I, I think about you know what happens to a public that gets so far removed from understanding architecture that all they see is this, this really stark face. And I'm wondering, did he consider that type or that that kind of materiality? in terms of where it exists in, in the history of, you know, American architecture for the past 40 or 50 years. So good, good question. Um, that's where I'm concerned, but great job guys. I thank you for inviting oh, me. We again. could just, we could I just talk all it. night, of course, because talking about architecture, <laughs> yeah, we know. could just keep going. Um, but yeah, it's been great talking to everyone and, uh, we'll, we'll keep it going next week. Yes, right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you to everybody and, uh, look forward to next week. Yes. Thanks to you both. I do too. Thank All you. Right. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye.